The Christian faith says that the faithful will rise again. That's the good news. But first, they have to die. That's the bad. No one gets out alive, whether it's the little deaths we die daily or the big one at the end. Hi, I'm Brian Pearson, and you are in the cave. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. Yeah, darling, go make it happen. Take the world in a loving place. Fire all of the guns and pumps and explode into space. I like smoking lightning. Welcome to the Mystic Cave. The Summer Edition. I'm reading from my novel, Passion Tide, published by Path Books in 2002. Christmas was a disaster for David. His congregation was mad at him, his family back home was feeling his absence, and his neighbor's attempt to comfort the afflicted only brought with it more pain. Surely things will get better? This is Chapter 5, Part 2. David had never known feelings like this before. A weight pressed itself into his chest like a fist. A vague, panicky confusion ruled in his head, preventing the flow of one clear thought to another, and a dull longing gnawed at him constantly like a festering toothache. He walked from room to room in the rectory, trying to focus on the tasks before him, on his preparations for the upcoming Sunday services, on his correspondence, anything. But at every turn, he saw before him the aristocratic profile of the Messiah's cellist. The image exerted a powerful, obsessive hold on him. It swept him up and carried him along on a current so strong he could not get his bearings. His head was being spun round, his body tossed from eddy to whirling eddy, his feet dangling helplessly beneath him, unable to touch bottom. She was, of course, more fantasy than reality. He knew this. She was to him no more than a fleeting image, a wishful projection of his own desire. But still, he could not keep himself from imagining the touch of her soft skin her fingers intertwining with his beneath the glow of candlelight, the velvet ribbon that held her hair drifting down across her bare back, falling to the floor. And as these visions rose up from the depths of his secret longing, he had to remind himself to breathe or suddenly find himself gasping as if in a waking apnea. He might have permitted this, or at least forgiven it, because he knew it was all so much rhapsodic invention born of his loneliness. But he knew also that the woman was real, that somewhere she existed in the flesh, and that this meant 
there was the possibility, however remote, that they might meet, perhaps at the post office, perhaps down an aisle at the co-op, and that meeting she might well turn out to be the very fulfillment of the fantasies he projected onto her. It could happen. The thought both terrified and excited him. And as long as that possibility existed, try as he might, he could not put her out of his mind. As David thought of Beverly in the light of this disturbing development, he had to admit that he could not remember a time when he had not loved her. But neither could he remember ever having fallen in love with her. Theirs had been a fated, soulful meeting, like the reunion of siblings separated at birth. They had loved one another from the start, their courtship more the resolution of longing than longing itself. In no time they were engaged to be married and settling into the predictable patterns that would order their life together. But this, this was different. David was lost in a guilty reverie when, on Boxing Day, the phone rang. It was Bishop Long calling from Victoria, asking David's forgiveness for bothering him on his day off. But the bishop and his wife had decided to take a few days off themselves and had arranged to rent a condo up near Tofino. He was wondering if David might be free the next day on Saturday evening and they could take him out to dinner. There would be nothing official about the visit. The bishop was not offering to take the Sunday services or even attend church for that matter. But it would provide an opportunity for him to meet David and to learn how things were going in the parish. David readily agreed. The thought of ecclesiastical company, a great relief to him. They would come by and pick him up at six, if in the meantime he could make reservations at a local restaurant of his choosing. There was only one decent restaurant open in town during the off-season. The pen and the several drinking establishments seemed too homey, and some downright grotty for a visiting bishop. So David contacted the Kingfisher down at Euclid's waterfront and reserved a table for three. He spent the next day cleaning house, mopping the empty expanse of hardwood floor, polishing fixtures in the bathroom and the kitchen. He walked into town and bought a bottle of good sherry and three small wine glasses that were part of some promotion at the liquor store. He purchased a set of woven tablecloths, took one from the set, and placed it in the middle of the kitchen table, along with a lit candle and the sherry glasses. Bishop Long had been ordained in the early 1960s, and David was not surprised to see that he still had something of the air of revolutionary fervor about him, though the bishop was soon to retire. It was in the trimmed goatee that looked more beatnik than modern chic, It was in the intense blue eyes that pierced the obfuscation that others brought to social issues, issues that, in Bishop Long's mind, were perfectly clear. All anyone had to do was follow the trajectory of logic from a passion for justice and a preferential option for the poor, and the answers were self-evident. Mrs. Long seemed less certain, but far more personable. A medical doctor, her successful geriatric practice was credited with having paid for many of her husband's causes and campaigns. What she thought of them, or of him for that matter, was demurely locked away behind a pleasant smile that looked out on the world with calm equanimity. Sitting around the kitchen table, David found himself looking to Mrs. Long for solace when the bishop 
answering his own question about how things were going in the fishing industry, launched into a lecture about the government travesty that protected the interests of large foreign fishing fleets while sinking an entire way of life here among Canada's coastal fishing communities. Mrs. Long simply returned to David's glance with a friendly smile. Her message to him, if there was a message intended, seemed to be, just relax, this is the way it's going to go all evening. The bishop was on his third sherry and still holding forth when Mrs. Long touched his arm, interrupting him to suggest that it was time for them to be heading out to the restaurant. They were greeted at the door of the Kingfisher by a young, attractive hostess. She was French-Canadian, judging by her accent, a waif no more than twenty, like so many who hitchhiked across the country and ended up at the coast to take whatever work offered itself for a season, maybe two. She took their coats and led them to a window table overlooking the harbour. The restaurant was mostly empty. There were only two other tables of diners. David and the Longs settled at their table and gazed out through their reflections in the glass toward the government docks, which were lit by high overhead spotlights, like a movie set. Mrs. Long thought she detected movement down on the dock, and they all strained to make out whether the small animal dashing about in the shadows was perhaps an otter. David was of no help, for he'd never seen one. He turned to survey the room as the bishop and his wife continued to point and peer out into the darkness. The three occupied tables were strung along the window, one behind David, the other in front of him, beyond a table that sat empty. He didn't want to turn around to scope out the diners behind him, but he could detect their American accents. At the table across from him was a couple with their backs to him, and, oh my God, it was her. It was the cellist, the angel of his dreams, sitting, facing him, directly in his line of vision. She was everything he had remembered her being. She was dressed in a tight, black, long-sleeved top, like a dancer or an opera singer, her hair tied back as it had been at the concert, her slender arms resting on the table, silver bangles at her wrists. Though the thought had never crossed his mind, he now saw that the fingers of her left hand were devoid of rings. He had never even considered the possibility that she might be married or that she might be otherwise attached that he might have been lusting after another man's wife or girlfriend. In his fantasy life, he had simply taken for granted her availability for him and for him alone. But now, there she was, in the flesh, as lovely as he had imagined, composed, self-assured, her dark eyes sparkling in the glow of the table's flickering oil lamp. David reminded himself to breathe out, just as he had learned at a clergy workshop on stress organized by Barbara, his regional dean back home. When you are feeling stress, remember to breathe out, they had learned. The rest will follow. But it was a struggle. He could feel his body going into panic mode, tightening up, his face draining of color. He was surprised as he tried to return his attention to the bishop and his wife to realize that they were talking to him, telling him a story. It was about their early years up the Sunshine Coast. He nodded as if he had been listening all along, but caught only a few passing phrases. Something about a native community? Something about a chapel? Maybe it was about their wedding. David couldn't tell. He glanced up. The cellist was receiving a drink from the young hostess. 
a red aperitif on the rocks, with a twist of lemon which she expertly squeezed and dropped into her glass. She was stirring the drink with the plastic stir-stick, her head slightly cocked, watching the juice from the lemon disperse through the wine. David dropped his gaze and nodded in the bishop's direction, as if considering the deep implications of whatever it was he had been saying. When he glanced back, he caught the cellist's eye. They both smiled, a non-committal smile, yet friendly, neighborly. The bishop's wife caught the exchange. Parishioner, she said? No, David replied quickly. She plays in the local orchestra. The bishop swung around to see. The cellist, finding herself suddenly the focus of attention, graciously acknowledged the whole table with a shy smile. Now her table companions turned around to see what they were missing. They smiled too, and the bishop and his wife nodded and smiled back. The American tourists behind David, sensing something was going on of a social nature, now spoke across the tables to the bishop and his wife. So where are you folks from? David dropped his head. Stop it, he wanted to say. Just stop it, all of you. You're wrecking it. But he brought his gaze back to his hosts and let them do the talking. He was determined to train all his attention on them for the rest of the evening. He could not afford to be caught with his guard down, for the sake of whatever tenuous link had now been forged between him and the cellist, he had to discipline himself to forswear any furtive glances, any lingering looks. The conversation with the American couple flourished for a few minutes, everyone in the room learning that they were from Washington State, a retired salesman and his wife who had lost their eldest son in a car accident a year ago and were taking their Christmas holidays on the road this year in their motorhome. They had found the road from Port Alberni disconcerting, in need of some serious repair, in their opinion, widening being just one of the problems, leading them to wonder about the tax structure here and how much public money gets directed to such things and whether this was the best a socialist government could do. They had heard that British Columbia was socialist. With a sharp glance, Mrs. Long succeeded in restraining her husband from rising to the bait, and soon enough, they turned their attention back to David. He decided he had better become proactive and take charge of the conversation himself. This would help focus his attention on the people at hand and keep him from looking over to the cellist. At the same time, he would be projecting a desirable image of himself in her direction, appearing as a man in possession of himself, an interesting man, perhaps even intriguing. David launched into a series of self-deprecating anecdotes from his early weeks on the coast, confessing his surprise to find that he was now a United Church minister, explaining the challenges of learning a new flexibility in his priestly role. He entertained them with the story of Stan's funeral, elaborating the extent to which he had saved the event from a descent into maudlin sentimentalism. He shared with them tales of his discoveries along the broken coastline. But all the time, while engaging the bishop and his wife in animated conversation, he only had one thought, and that was of the cellist. He hoped she was catching a glimpse of his fine performance. When it was time to leave, with great discipline, David avoided looking over in the cellist's direction and managed to leave the restaurant without so much as a backward glance. He was proud of himself for his self-control. But as the bishop's car pulled away, 
David could not resist one last look from the dark safety of the back seat. The cellist and her companions were rising to leave. Had David and his hosts held back for even a few moments, they all might have left the restaurant together. He might have introduced himself. He might have complimented her on her performance at last week's concert as he helped her with her coat. They might have exchanged names, saying how nice it was to meet one another. And all under the benign eye of the bishop and his wife, all sanctioned in the name of good pastoral style, of extending the church's influence, of making a mark in the wider community. But the opportunity was lost. The next day was the first Sunday after Christmas. As usual, David met his small flock at the door after the services. No one at either church ventured to make any comment about last Sunday's failed carol service, nor about the disastrous Christmas Eve services. They greeted him with general seasonal pleasantries, employed to keep the real issues out of sight, shaking his hand as they took their leave. But in Euclid, Grace lingered after the others had gone. As she took David's hand, she looked him in the eye. Suppressing a coy smile, she inquired how he had enjoyed last Sunday's concert. She almost winked. She was thinking of Mimi, no doubt, who was conspicuously absent from church that morning. David began rolling out a polite response when suddenly it seized him that this was his chance. Actually, the whole thing was quite beyond anything I could have anticipated, he told her. It was just marvelous. What a wonderful collection of musicians. They were excellent. He was gushing now. And from both communities, I believe. You clue at Antofino? Oh, yes, Grace said proudly, though not the soloists. Right, he said, not the soloists. But the section heads? Were they all local too? I'm sorry, she said. I'm not sure what you mean. I mean the lead players in each instrumental section, he explained, closing in on his real purpose. Like the uh, lead player in the cello section, for instance. A woman with dark hair, I seem to recall. Would she be local too? Grace thought for a moment. Then her eyes lit up. Oh, you mean Daphne, she said. Daphne Hart. Oh, yes, she's local. She's the vet, you know. She runs the kennel out in Millstream on the way out of town. Trains dogs too, I believe. Oh, yes, she's local. They all are. We're very proud of our local talent. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Daphne. Daphne Hart, David sighed. Now she had a name, a mythic name, even. She would be in the phone book. She would have an address, a phone number. She was real, and she was local. This was almost too much for David as his fingers fumbled to remove his robes back in the vestry. He had no plan, he had no goal, just this beguiling new possibility materializing before him. A small, diminishing voice in his head told him to stop it, to put an end to this right now, that this was all a silly game, a stupid schoolboy crush, nothing more, and that he'd better just pull himself together. But it was too late. Some other part of him had already bolted from the barn and was even now galloping across the open field.
David was now in a constant state of excitement. He was in possession of the most powerful knowledge available to humankind, the knowledge of a name. That name was Daphne, and he rehearsed it over and over in his head. He let it roll off his lips, soft as spring seedlings born on petals lighter than air, carried on the gentlest breeze. Daphne, his heart sang out. David tried to anchor himself by focusing his thoughts and energies on his ministry, but since the Christmas debacle, he had lost the will to engage in anything new or novel. He wanted nothing more now than to stick to the basics of his job, to lead the worship, preach the word, visit the sick, and not climb too far out on any more limbs. There was solace in this for David. His people were quietly, if sporadically, faithful. Their habits of church-going had sustained them for many a year before he arrived. They were not asking him to be clever, or to be innovative, or to evoke from them any enthusiasm in their weekly offering of worship. They were asking him simply to be there with them, to speak openly and simply from the scriptures, to break bread in their midst, to choose songs they could sing along with, to say prayers on their behalf. He found that when he attended to these simple tasks, everyone was happy, himself included. It was a ministry of presence, a description David had once regarded with condescension as a euphemism for a ministry of doing nothing at all. But he was discovering that, as he let go of his grand schemes and plans and gave himself to the daily tasks of ministry, he was granted a deeper peace and a greater pleasure than he had known before in ministry. But this new simplicity did nothing to engage that part of him now so distracted by love and lust. It left him with too much time on his hands, too much time to think, to daydream. He found that the essentials of his job, if begun on Monday morning, could be completed by Wednesday afternoon, when he took the details of the Sunday services over to Mimi. Without other commitments making claims on his time, that left three days to wander the house, pick up the mail, make his daily drive to the lighthouse, open a book, put it down, gaze out the window of the attic beneath the steady patter of the falling rain, all the time picturing Daphne's face, whispering the sound of her name. Clearly, he needed something else to do. He began accepting invitations to attend the meetings of his deanery and presbytery, he had been putting these off, trading on the fact that he was only the interim minister and not likely to have any contribution to make to the ongoing administration of his local Anglican and United Church judicatories. But now, the thought of driving across the island to meet his ministerial colleagues provided welcome relief from the foul weather and the isolation and from his obsessive thoughts of Daphne. The frog prints rose and fell along the mist-shrouded ribbon of road that led inland to the next meeting of the local Anglican clericus. Local had a different meaning here than it had back in Toronto. Here, his closest neighbour in Port Alberni was an hour and a half's drive away through some of the most beautiful and dangerous terrain imaginable. He chugged up to Sutton's Pass and the Frog Prince and coasted down the other side to where the road opened up alongside Sprout Lake. Magnificent views and hair-raising drop-offs met him at every turn. It was exhilarating, but David had to keep his mind focused to stay on the road. 
The meeting was in Parksville, another half-hour's drive beyond Port Alberni, on the island's gentler leeward side. David sang hymns and songs to himself as he wound along the wet roadway through Cathedral Grove, along the shores of Cameron Lake, and by the farms and hamlets that began dotting the countryside. He was happy to be coming in from the wilds. His clergy counterparts seemed pleased to meet him as they arrived and gathered around the coffee urn. He had evidently aroused some curiosity within the deanery, his name appearing in the bishop's recent newsletter, but unattached to a face or a theological predisposition. In the opening rounds of conversation, he became aware that they were trying to place him, to find his slot in the ecclesiastical order of things. What divinity school had he attended? What were some of his goals in his present ministry? What had the Lord been doing lately in his life? Each answer spoke greater volumes than he could ever have intended as they listened for his vocabulary and watched his body language. Was he liberal? Was he conservative? Was he middle of the road? Would he support or challenge their own causes and predilections? Would he add or subtract to the numbers in their cliques and factions? More formally, as the meeting was called to order, their conversation revealed that while they seemed to know one another well— Familiarity had not made them any more tolerant of each other's well-established theological stances and positions. There were tensions running through this group. The evangelicals were suspicious of the liberals. The liberals were dismissive of the evangelicals, while the charismatics floated blithely along, the spirit raising them up and beyond the realm of any earthly din. The one thing around which they could all rally was the subject of money— Specifically, Bishop Long's new equalization policy, a way of flattening the range of clergy stipends, raising minimums, and placing a ceiling on maximums. Shocking, they called it. Arbitrary. High-handed. Just who did he think he was to mess with clergy salaries? It wasn't as if any of them were well-paid to begin with. As they broke for lunch, David found himself looking around the room and identifying the very people he had left behind in his Ontario deanery. The names and faces had changed, of course, but everything else remained the same. He sighed. The meeting of Presbytery in Nanaimo several weeks later proved far more instructive. It was a gathering of both clergy and laypeople from United Church congregations up and down Vancouver Island, everything north of the Malahat, Victoria's northern mountain border. There were seniors from the wealthy retirement communities that gazed across the Strait of Georgia to the mainland with its ready access to medical facilities and opera series. There were tradespeople from the isolated logging towns and fishing villages up island. There was a healthy youth contingent, some with nose rings and dyed hair. There were young mothers, their preschool children enrolled in presbyteries professionally run daycare. David looked forward to seeing Christian social democracy in action. Unlike the notoriously cautious Anglicans, United Church members never shied away from controversy. Whatever the dilemma of the day, the building of a resource-based economy, the just resolution of the scarred legacy of residential schools, the protesting of old-growth logging, there were so many issues for a socially conscious church to address— This was the peculiar genius of the United Church, David had to admit, 
hot social issues being hotly debated in the feisty spirit of democratic egalitarianism. If the Anglican Church could once have been described as the Tory party at prayer, was the United Church the new Democratic Party at work? He was eager to find out. David registered, along with the others, attaching a bold name tag to his lapel that announced cheerily, Hello, my name is David. He had been instructed to write his name in large letters so that others would be able to call him by name. He milled about the gathering crowd, waiting for this to happen. A lovely young woman conducted the opening worship, held in the church's spacious sanctuary. She was a professional dancer and led the assembly in a series of movements while her sister, who did not appear even remotely related, beat out irregular rhythms on a Japanese gong. They reached up high, stretching on tiptoe to pick the ripe fruit from the branches of an imaginary tree. They swooped down low, bending deeply at the waist to sweep the leaves off the ground with the backs of their hands. David joined in without reservation, encouraged by the fact that no one knew him here. He stood with the rest, his eyes closed, following the leader's instructions, meditating on the space that surrounded him. He reached out with his fingertips toward the people who shared his space with him. He turned his body this way and then that, filling his own personal space. Then the group was invited to spread out to form a huge circle around the circumference of the sanctuary. They opened their eyes, joined hands, and sang a song called How Wide is the World, taking in by implication not only this space and this island, but also this nation, this earth, and this entire known universe. David was fascinated. Not once had God's name been mentioned, at least not in a way that was recognizable to him. Yet the worship was reverent and well-ordered. He did not feel silly and exposed as he had in so many ill-prepared contemporary services in his own denomination. He was content for the moment to be in the company of new colleagues and eager to see the work of presbytery unfold. The evening session, it turned out, was filled with bureaucratic preliminaries, with the calling of rolls and the tabling of reports one after another, everything fastidiously noted in the minutes. David gave them their due— Parliamentary procedure, the watchdog of democratic process, required a certain amount of care and patience as the groundwork was laid for the real business which he knew, as the session adjourned for the day, would begin the next morning. David had had the option of being billeted overnight with members of the host congregation, but he chose to remain alone, taking a small motel room close by. He awoke the next morning and made his way immediately back to the church, ready to assume his new role as a United Church presbyter. But the morning session was filled not with impassioned speeches and noble debate, but with procedural wrangling. First came the question of abstentions. Were people allowed to abstain from voting, or were they compelled to vote on every issue? The United Church Manual was consulted, a sort of secondary scripture, it seemed, just as the prayer book is for Anglicans, while speaker after speaker rose to correct the previous speaker regarding the true guiding principles and precedents that would answer this thorny question. At last, it was determined that, barring a conflict of interest, which must be declared to the House, all members were compelled to cast their vote one way or another for every motion." Members were reminded in passing that if anyone needed to leave the floor, hence missing a vote, they required the permission of the House. 
But someone rose to question the validity of this requirement, bristling at the encroachment it represented on their freedom to come and go as they pleased. This opened a new and particularly rancorous debate on the balance of democratic responsibility and individual freedom. Those who favored responsibility took nasty swipes at those favoring individual freedom, accusing them of being childish, while the freedom fighters accused the stick-in-the-muds of being anal-retentive. Finally, a motion was made to table the issue, but an amendment was quickly moved to forestall that motion, a debate ensuing about whether a motion to table could be amended. The lunch break arrived without Presbytery having addressed a single issue of substance, though now it was true they possessed a clearer understanding of how they might conduct themselves were such an issue to arise. David was confused and not a little crestfallen. Over lunch, he ventured to point out to a table-mate, an older woman from Nanaimo, that the debate thus far had seemed a little virulent, especially considering its substance. Turning to him, realizing he was a newcomer, she said, "'See how we love each other?' And she flashed him a wide grin, a piece of lettuce leaf caught between her front teeth. It was all a wonderful diversion, these brief forays into the church's curious decision-making realms— it provided much food for thought and reflection. The Anglican Church could certainly be accused of having been for generations a male-dominated, priest-ridden, hierarchical institution, a church culture sometimes described pejoratively as Father Knows Best. But its actual machinations seemed more archetypally feminine, battles being waged with subtle delicacy through innuendo and inference more than through direct combat. By contrast, the United Church was far more egalitarian, having welcomed to the ranks of the ordained women and people from across the spectrum of sexual orientation and gender identification long before other denominations. In its protectiveness of those marginalized by society, it seemed almost motherly. Yet, if this meeting were any measure, their decision-making was archetypally masculine, in terms of substance, presbytery was excessively procedural. In terms of style, it was nothing short of brutal, having little regard for either feelings or finesse. For all their respective vanities, the sacramental theology of the Anglicans, the social concern of the Uniteds, neither church seemed particularly effective at breaking through its own rhetoric actually to do something. Thank God for the local church, David found himself thinking as he drove home the next day, glad for the signs that told him he was nearing Euclid. But in the end, it was no use, any of it. For when David drove the stretch of highway that ran into town out past Daphne's place, he slowed the frog prince to a halt. The houses of Millstream appeared through the trees, set back from the road in clearings at the base of tall stands of Sitka spruce and red cedars. A sudden break in the weather allowed a momentary parting of the clouds, the sun penetrating the forest to light up the clearings as if from within. Daphne's home and office glowed in a shaft of sunlight that lit the grounds while leaving the roadside where David sat in shadow. A wooden sign at the end of her driveway identified the veterinary practice of Dr. Daphne Hart, DVM, the letters carved in relief. He could see through the trees a compound created by the intersection of three buildings, likely trailers originally, 
which had been arranged in a U-shape and covered with cedar shakes and shingles so that they appeared as a single cottage, long and low, with paned windows, sculpted eaves, and painted shutters. Flower boxes adorned the window sills, and trellises framed the front door. The effect was magical, as if it might be the hidden lair of the queen of the forest people. Everything else was now forgotten. Such taste, such simple elegance, such self-possession as this small cottage in the woods conveyed to David while he sat surveying it from the roadside. These were the very qualities he would desire for himself. Could their destinies, his and the Messiah's cellist, long remain separate? I've been reading from my novel, Passion Tide. In the next episode, David might be feeling that he is due a shot of new life right about now. But like the rest of us, there must surely be a reckoning, a day of judgment, before the heavens will open and the angels descend. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. (laughs) 